Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Canis Albinas. Makalua. The man team. Mega Bears fan. Welcome, Internet, to 2021 and the first uh, episode of Polycast in 2021. This is episode 376, and I am one of your regular co-hosts, Mega Bears fan, joined as always by Canis Albinus. Season 15, woo! The me and team. Civilization crawl stone soup, question mark? And Maka Lewis should be here momentarily. Hopefully. So how is everyone's new year? So far, so good. There's a crawl tournament going on, which is why I said that. So working on that a bit. Dungeon yeah. crawl stone soup, for those who don't know. Yeah. Fantastic roguelike. In today's news segment, we learned from the Firaxis website and um, possibly VentureBeat.com. It's not exactly clear, but Civilization franchise has moved 51 million units over its 25-26 year history, which is a pretty significant number. According to a certain, let's see, VentureBeat says that there were 33 million sold when Civ 6 came out. So Civ 6 has sold 18 million copies. That Epic exclusive has done them a lot of favors. Uh huh. They weren't exclusive <laughs> to Epic. Fortunately. <laughs> that would be quite sad. Well, that's what happens that when would... you uh, start putting your game on uh, every platform conceivable, you sell a lot more units. Yeah. Yep. That does seem to be the approach that works these days. If you're going to make a game, you want to sell it more. Put it as many places as you can. Don't make it exclusive to anything or anyone. Well, and it certainly helps that like all the platforms nowadays are just you know PCs in a pre-built box. So there's not a whole lot of uh, console-specific optimization the way there was you know 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, but to also, be fair, it's been like that a while. Like, I would say by Xbox 360 days, you're already getting it to the point where it's close enough to that. Yeah, but there are the... challenges. Like, you, you, making a game for a controller versus not a controller is pretty significantly different, and that's always been a sticking point for strategy games historically. Yeah, I was welcome uh... to Mackie. She's on mute. There we yeah. go. Hi. Hello, Mackie. You might need to uh, up, try to up your volume if you can. Um, yeah, I just had a, a friend telling me uh, last night that uh, one of the big innovations with this new generation of consoles, the PS5 and the uh, Xbox, uh, crap, what are they calling it now? Series S, Series X, both of those, one of those, I keep forgetting. Uh, Xbox confusing. One X, Series X, X One. 
<laughs> yeah, something like that. Uh, that one of the tech, big technical innovations um, that's making, you know, for example, a game like Cyberpunk play on those consoles, but not the older PS4 and Xbox One, is that uh, the graphics chip is now able to pull assets directly from the hard drive instead of the assets having to go through memory, through the CPU, and then serve to the graphics card, which uh, is a pretty neat technical innovation. It only works on solid-state stuff. Yeah. Which is probably why they haven't been able to do it recent until recently. So if you picked up Cyberpunk for one of the last-gen consoles over the winter holiday and are wondering why the heck it doesn't work, that's a big part of the reason why. Solid State's really come a long way in the last 10 years, now that you mention yeah. it. Like, they, how available slash how costly it is is a lot more favorable these days than 10 years ago. Yeah, I don't have a PS5 yet, but I've been reading that, like, and hearing online that uh, the Demon Souls remake has virtually no loading screens at all, whereas, you know, these FromSoft games typically have been, like, 30 seconds to a whole minute for their loading screens uh, on the previous consoles. It's it looks in this animated so good, but they didn't they didn't update how it plays. It's so archaic in that regard, which is really unfortunate. It's a lot of TDM crap. Oh well. Well, that I guess do is you... a damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of thing, because you change it too much, and then the fans of the old game would complain. And I'm a big fan of the old game, so I would probably be one of those complaining. They changed virtually nothing, no, like the item drop farming, all that stuff. <laughs> there's almost nothing that's changed from the original. They could have made some basic things to make it more convenient. To be fair, they did like a couple things, like you can send stuff to the stockpile uh, more conveniently than the original. But there's very little, and there could have been a lot more things like that that were not done. Without like changing how the monsters the move or whatever. Exclusive. Yeah. Yeah, I, well, I still don't understand it, the so. concept of ni- of console exclusives. I think that's um, something organized by the consoles, right? Where the they... consoles, I kn- I know they pay games to be only on their platform to get more people to buy their platform, but all it does is make people not play certain games. So well, I don't know why the gaming companies do it. Well, yeah, for the consoles, it's like a loss leader sort of thing. They take a loss in order to try to get more people to buy the console, and you know that then in turn sells more games on that console, which I think the console manufacturers maybe get some... Do they get a cut of game sales? Third-party game sales? I don't know. Maybe they not. Get the same, they get the same cut that Steam gets on games sold on Steam. Yeah, for which stuff is sold... Why Steam- over Which is the, why Steam's uh, thing is what it is. It's because it's identical to the console cuts. It's not, it's not necessarily the development companies that like it as much as their publishers like it because it means they don't have to spend as much to make the game. Yeah. Well, and I'm sure that, you know, there, even though we were just talking about how there's a lot less console-specific optimization, there still is some. So it is still easier to develop a game for one platform than it is to develop it for, you know, three different platforms concurrently. Uh, and particularly when it comes to, like, you know, QA and, and testing and stuff like that, you just got to do so much more of it. And that I was way so. more true back in the day. Like, uh, it was like the Square Soft and then the Square Enix stuff. Like, if you go back far enough, then there were pretty significant technical challenges between consoles and PC, or even just between two consoles, such that the developers being bribed to make an exclusive for one uh, system 
uh, made sense to the developers as well because they didn't have to do a ton of work uh, to put the game on multiple platforms. And I'm not sure that that's true to the same extent today. I mean, it, it's not, you can't just like copy paste it, but compared to what it used to be, where you're know, like putting things on a cartridge versus whatever, uh, probably less true now. I do know that the Xbox One and the PS4 used the same graphics chip. They were identical, so yeah. that's one thing they didn't have to worry about so much. Good luck with that back in the day. <laughs> so yeah, I, I think this is like an archaic thing that at one point made sense, but really doesn't now. Well, it's not uh, super... Especially with the PC. It's not super archaic, because I'm pretty sure that even like as recently as the PlayStation 3, uh, it was a nightmare for developers to develop specifically for that, which is uh, one of the reasons that a lot of multi-platform releases during that era, the PS3 port was always the worst and the buggiest. You know, like you play your Skyrims and your Fallout New Vegas and, and stuff like that. You know, you go to their wiki pages with the bug lists, and it's like, oh, look, there's uh, only 20 bugs on the Xbox, but there's 50 on the PS3. The PS3, we kind of push into a corner and pretend it doesn't exist because it had a really weird memory setup. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't the PS3 released quite some time ago, too? Like, I, I think it's fair to call that archaic. It was like 2005 ish, I want to say. Maybe 2006. Looks like it was a it, That's archaic. <laughs> it, was the yeah. same, it was the same generation as the Xbox 360. Right. Yeah. I don't remember which one came out first, but they were, like, probably within six months apart. The PS3 was kind of a doomed enterprise from the start, because it was way more expensive and, you know, just kind of a mess all the way through. And then the PS4 was better than the Xbox One. So. But we've drifted away from the Civ topic. Love it. Just a smidge. Speaking of clicking into the right window, um, what's the name of this guy? Wine, gu- wine guy or wine gov? I think it's, it's like wine, wine guy. guy. Wine Based guy, on the yeah. image, that would yeah. make the most sense. Yeah. Yeah, that, that is a Y at the end there. It is a hand holding a, a clutch of grapes, so I will assume it's a wine guy. Yeah. He says, throughout history, the, pill- the, country- the armies have pillaged the countryside often and lost the support of the locals when they were pillaging often to the point where they had to withdraw and change their strategy because of the incurring too much local backlash. In civilization, this doesn't really happen. It's not even... There's no real impact of the land on Civ Civ units specifically, unless you're talking about not being able to heal at double speed like you can in regular your own land. So the, the poster is asking, should we... Should there be a change to the game rules such that pillaging has a penalty rather than not pillaging. And that's right now it's the... it's just a straight bonus. It's tough in the context of uh Civ turns. I mean <laughs> which which yeah, period warfare are we discussing when we're talking about local pushback of any meaningful degree or even to the extent that armies pillaged like it's just nonsensical to compare World War Two times to like Renaissance times to Roman times. Uh, those are all pretty different 
the executed wars in general. Well, one thing so I don't, with that I don't regard, know that this would make a lot of sense. Yeah, well, to that point, one of the big things that changed with modern wars as compared to, you know, older wars in like the medieval era and earlier is uh, the concept of war crimes, you know, which you don't really have until like what, probably World War One, I, I think maybe maybe the Napoleonic Wars had a concept of war crimes. So you didn't you didn't attack civilian populations in, you know, modern uh, warfare because it is, you know, considered uh, a war crime and looked down upon by the global community, but that's also something that's not really implemented in uh, in Civ at all either. You can, you know, you can uh, pillage someone back into the Stone Age, you know, from the Information Era, and the rest of the world doesn't bat an eye. And as long as you don't capture cities, you don't even get uh, grievances. I don't think. You get grievances yeah. for declaring war on somebody, but right. But if they but declare no war difference. on you, yeah, if they declare war on you, and then you walk in and just pillage every one of their improvements and districts and don't capture a city, like you know, there's no diplomatic repercussion for you at all. You know, if somebody was trying to invade New York and they pillaged everything in the tri-state area. There would be people rioting, and the worldwide would be going, "What the hell are you doing?" I mean, even though the war itself would be odd, but. Yeah, these days. But keep in mind that for a substantial chunk of the history, uh, much more so than our current state, uh, living off opposing land was pretty normal. Right. And, I mean, the locals weren't exactly excited about it, to put it mildly, but very seldom did they have the means uh, or even the organization to resist it meaningfully. So I'm not sure I'm a fan of cities becoming stronger in a scenario where historically they actually would become weaker because they just had less stuff available to them after all the pillaging. Yeah, and I, I responded to this thread uh, as well last night, and my knee-jerk reaction is uh, cities are already easy enough to defend. You know, we don't need uh, cities getting stronger because you pillage tiles. Now, I, I could be in favor of, as I said before, like diplomatic uh, repercussions. I also suggested the idea that, uh, and other posters did as well, of there being a loyalty penalty after you capture the mm -hmm. city. So, yeah. uh, if you do pillage all of their land, uh, they're not going to be particularly happy with you, so it would then be harder to hold the city after you capture it, and that would be a trade-off that you would have to think about when you're, you know, sieging the city, is, is it worth it to pillage this tile to, you know, heal my unit, or is that going to make it impossible for me to hold the city? I mean, if you're going to raise the city anyway, it doesn't really matter. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think that would be a better idea than some of the other suggestions of giving the city combat buffs. Because as we've said many, many times on this show in the past, uh, defending cities in Civ Six is already heavily in the defender's favor. And right yeah, I now, think the loyalty penalty is not only fair, but intuitive, uh, considering what you're doing. Right. So yeah, I could I could be on board with that for sure, and it makes pillaging a little less obvious to do, even though people also probably still do it a lot. But it, it at least will be less automatic, which is good. And a small and, number. And you can make an opinion penalty for it uh, start happening in the later. It's like just when you get to a certain era, like the AI start hating you if you start pillaging. Yeah, like pile on grievances if you start pillaging willy nilly. Right, and that's yeah, something that would only the... be like industrial or post-industrial that yeah, you post start to see that. Yeah, I mean. Because we have, because when you drop a nuke on cities later in the game, it pillages a lot of the tiles around it. So can... <laughs> I don't know if I'd call that pillaging per se. Well, yeah, you know, it does well, destroy it pretty nicely, it but yeah, but you get a penalty for more for the dropping of the nuke, but it's doing a similar thing. So it would make sense that when you're doing not nuke pillaging industrial and later, that people are going to clutch their pearls and go, oh.
Right, and especially even during the uh, the later stages of the you know game that represent more uh, modern time periods, uh, you know where you do have mass media and stuff like that reporting on you know these potential atrocities against civilians going on around the world, uh, then that should definitely get a reaction from uh, the you know wider global community and maybe even you know back home, depending on like maybe your government and you know popular support for the war. Uh, increasing war weariness or maybe even leading to a drop in loyalty in your own cities because, you know, maybe they're actually becoming sympathetic to the enemy that you're pillaging back into the Stone Age for no good reason. But that might be a little bit out of the scope of Civ because that's getting a lot more, you know, when you start talking about domestic popular opinion, that's, you know, something that makes things a lot more complicated. No, loyalty is about the closest representation we have to that. Yeah, that and amenity. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the- probably all the more we need. Man, that's another thing. If it's, like, say you're under democracy in one of those later ages and you go on a pillaging spree, that could start making your amenities less effective. You know, because back home they're going, no, this is not how we do things. What are you doing? I think that can depend on your government, too, to be fair. Or even policies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you've got military state or a police state, you know, policy active, uh, you know, your your people should either be a lot less informed about the atrocities that you're committing or a lot or just not care as much or not able to voice that dissent because uh, then they get the atrocities committed against them. <laughs> Too real. Yes. I'm going, going no real world examples. No real world examples. Yeah, we kind of gloss over the implications of running the military-oriented governments. And while I would happily run something like fascism in the game, that's yeah, not so good when you really think about the implications of that and living in the world where somebody is uh, doing that. But eh, it's a game after all. So, oh yeah, someone even had an example. They were waiting on their spaceship to reach its destination. They didn't feel like conquering, so they just decided to carpet bomb everything and reach their jet bombers. It's like, uh, yeah, that should get you a ton of grievances. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I'm bored. I'll carpet, carpet bomb the planet. What? Oh, another uh, tangential thing that I had mentioned on this thread uh, was the uh, idea that maybe when you pillage a strategic resource, instead of getting like a gold or science yield or whatever it is now, maybe you should just get a lump sum of that strategic resource. I suggested like, you know, you pillage an iron mine, maybe instead of getting gold and science, you just get like a stockpile of 10 iron, which you can then use towards uh, training units and maybe even using against that enemy. I'm not sure which is better there. Or it could be a combination of the two. Yeah, I was going to say a combination. Have some gold, have some resource. Because that might be just what you need to upgrade one unit to help you fight them off or something. Yeah, and or it have would be an interesting... Or have the... Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just saying, and it would be an extra incentive, you know, for the defender to protect, you know, those sources so that they are not stolen and then used against them. Give them that one piece of excess iron necessary to repair their units. Mm-hmm. So, which tiles are hills? Because Aunt Sal's uh, started this topic, posted an image, which is hard for you to see when you're listening to this, but it's like, he's asking, scanning over this image, can you immediately tell which are hills and which are flat? And there's another picture in there where they were showing what they thought. I, I get that, because I think that's been a, a, 
a comment about the sieve tile set or hex set in this case. I took a quick look at this um, uh, just a little bit before this topic, and I would have put the green circles almost identically to this poster, except for where the question mark is, I would have also had one. So yeah, there are way fewer hills than apparent uh, based on the image, and that that has long been a complaint with Civ 6, yeah. In fact, yeah, I think we, we just talked about that in like the last episode before the holiday break when we were talking about how good the art style is, except for the fact that I can't tell which tiles are hills. hills. <laughs> yeah. yeah, if you don't have the yields on, which is like some of the first things said, and I play with the yield on as well, uh, yeah, <laughs> you basically can't. And it's even access. worse if it's covered by a, uh, like a forest. Like, I mean, on t- for one thing, it's hard to tell on Flatland, but then you got a forest or something covering it up, and it's like, is this tile a hill? I don't know. Yeah, because you can have an area of flat land that's all covered with forest, but there's two hills in the middle, but you don't know that until you move a unit on and go, oops, I thought I could keep moving. Yep. That's in the middle of an invasion. That's not fun. To me, it seems like that would be an easy thing to fix, but maybe there's some sort of underlying reason why that's not something that can be easily remedied. Hmm. Exaggerate the shadowing or something, maybe, in the art? Well, later in this thread, there was someone who actually took a screenshot of the same set of tiles at uh, different you know, times of day in the game with different lighting conditions to show just how different the tiles look under the different lights. And uh, yeah, like the ones in like the middle of the afternoon do look substantially different than the ones like later in the evening. Like it's a lot easier to tell in the evening because the the shadows are being cast like towards the camera so you can actually see the shadows whereas earlier in the day there you know the light is directly overhead or actually you know a little bit oriented towards the camera so the shadows are being cast away from the camera where you really can't see them. Yeah, like looking at this one it's like about like eight through ten in the morning, it's a bit harder to tell because it's almost got a glare going on. Yeah, and in, in this case in particular, is all on like snow tiles. And as someone mm-hmm. who snowboards, uh, I'm like, oh yeah, that uh, that looks like snow blindness. That's a uh, that's what it looks <laughs> like when you go snowboarding without polarized uh, goggles. You can't, yeah, you can't it see. does. But I don't know why that needs to be in the game per se. And as cool as the the sh- the shadows of being on different sides as the sun rises and sets and stuff in the game is, I'm not sure why a game that operates on the scale of you know at at minimum like year typically and to, uh, very for most of the game many more than a single year per turn really needs to have different lighting like this. I guess like, they just, I have to just pick whichever one is most visually nice to look at and keep that on. <laughs> uh, I also want to point out for the record that if the uh, uh, changing light conditions does bother you, there is an option in the game settings to not only disable that, but to also set it to a specific you know in-game time of day. So you can yeah. have whatever lighting... Uh, you prefer and just lock it to that setting and I'm, I'm think you can even change that while you're in like a game like you don't have to quit your yes. game yeah to do that yeah i recommend doing that i, I did that pretty quickly <laughs> i even do I that in games like hearts of iron because like even in the context where it makes sense where you have like daily uh text like you actually have the game advancing on an hour by hour basis uh but the game speed is relatively high so you're doing day night cycles constantly it's just annoying yeah, it doesn't like really flicker. help 
it, it doesn't really help a lot. I mean, I guess you get some benefit because you know uh, when the modifiers are active or whatever. But the way the game plays, it's not really practical to take advantage of that. So it, it, it winds up just being a nuisance rather than anything useful. Well, day-night cycles are a very popular feature in like city-building games in particular, in large part because people just like to look at their pretty city with all the lights on. <laughs> and with the focus on like building districts and Civ Six, like almost being kind of like a hex-based city-builder, uh, I, I think maybe Firaxis was like, well, you know, it's people keep asking for it in City Skylines and Sim City and all that stuff. I guess we should probably put it in too, just so that people don't bug us for it later. I don't know what you're talking it, about. Civ Six is a war game. It is a very neat feature. I don't yeah, know if it's, it's necessary, but it's it's neat. It's in there because rule of cool. Yeah. Grumble, grumble! Don't need this crap in my war game. Grumble. <laughs> And again, if the if the hill like the hill textures are like the only place where I where it really is a a problem for me, like everything else, I think does look really good and yeah. is really easy to discern. So like if they could just fix that, like it it wouldn't even be a problem anymore. I mean, there's maybe a few other little nagging things, but not being able to tell hills from flatlands is like the only thing that actually makes a substantial difference in terms of gameplay because it you know means I'd misclick and screw up and move a tile on, or a unit onto the wrong tile. Yeah, I don't need humankind's cliffside type of, you know, distinction, but, you know, somewhere in the middle there, we're a little more, a little more able to tell the hills from the mountain. No, if they need to do is just make like a blatant cartoony like hills that don't fit the surrounding environment at all. Make <laughs> it like so... the hill, make it like the hills in that graphic where the, the grandparents have to walk uphill in the snow both ways. Yeah. <laughs> Put little hobbit holes in them just so we know. We, oh, yeah, there you go. That's that's your new neighborhood district. You have a bunch of hobbit holes on the hill. <laughs> you you still wouldn't convince me to build them, but at least look at them for a moment before I pillage them from the AI or whatever. They're yeah. useful for achievements. And at least on like uh, coasts, uh, you know, I think the hills always have cliffs adjacent to them if they're on the coast. Mm-hmm. So that yes. I, that is one thing that does help. If they could have some other visually, you know, t- uh, distinct feature of hills to go along with, you know, just the rolling texture, then uh, I think that would go a long way. Neighborhoods are also useful for rationalism. Which is not, which is the next topic, but we're not there yet. The rational conclusion is not to build them. Uh, Would you prefer a good game of chess? Hey, chess is good. Big surge in popularity lately, actually. You can thank Netflix for that. So rationalism. So the uh, the proper move is two king e two. Uh, Got to play the bond cloud opener. It is the best chess opener for sure. Wait, what were we talking about? <laughs> Not chess, <laughs> but go on. <laughs> okay, so thread started by Encage here, uh, talking about the uh, the rationalism and change in balance change leading to no balance at all. Um, I'm not sure I agree with this, but. Uh, the premise is that it's going to be harder to get the uh, plus four adjacency, uh, needing either a 15 pop or what is it, making your cities prettier, some crap I never pay attention to. You need so, to yeah. have 
in order to get rationalism to work, which I think is 50% science output in the city, you need 15 pop city and four adjacency, four plus four adjacency on your. Um, I thought it was going yeah, to be but, either well, or. Uh, yeah, it's or, so you get it for either. Ooh. And I'm not sh- I, I assume they stack. So I assume you can get both if both conditions apply, mm. but I don't know for sure. I plus hundred. That might be a little much. <laughs> Has that been confirmed? I, I find that hard to believe. I'm like not maybe. sure. I haven't tested it since it was changed. So, but yeah. Uh, so the the gist of it is that there are civs that can achieve this more easily than others, and uh, some of them were already really good prior to the change. So that this is yeah, actually Korea is one of them. Yeah. The, the big complaint like, oh, is that God. it made the civs that were already really good at getting district adjacencies <clears throat> even better. Yeah, but like, I, I'm a two minds about this because like any change you make in a game that's reasonably complex and Civ Six certainly fits that bill, you're going to have ripple effects to surrounding mechanics that might require then further balance changes. So if they want there to be some incentive slash decision making model for improving your city beyond what players were doing, this makes sense even if it temporarily knocks the or skews some civs too strong or weak uh and also in fraxis's defense there's never been any real push for making each civilization choice comparable slash balanced against each other you know even going pretty much back to the implementation of civs being meaningfully different in a mechanical sense there has always been imbalances between civilization choices so okay maybe they're strong by too much now that might play out but then they can just be nerfed and that might be justified. Who knows? But I don't know that that like I don't know that that should be a reason to reject the particular changes for the uh, rationalism change itself. And at the time period of the game when rationalism becomes active, like it is not unreasonable to have multiple cities at fifteen population, and the ones that aren't at fifteen population, uh, like. It, it again isn't too hard, especially if you use district adjacency and uh, you know put a government plaza. So you you know tuck your campus in between some mountains, throw in a government plaza, you know put uh, one or two other districts adjacent to it, and you know you've got plus four whether the city's at fifteen pop or not. Yeah. So it's not you like they made it, it impossible. Also, a minor buff to ley lines. Yeah, well, a minor buff to anything that provides an extra adjacency bonus. Uh, to campuses, anyway. Uh, was this same change applied to the other similar uh, policies? Like, there's a similar one, I think, for commercial hubs. Uh, is that Was that also changed to plus four instead of plus three? I believe it was, but I don't have the facts to prove it. I think commercial hubs are a little bit easier because they get, like, extra adjacency from things like harbors. and Like, a harbor is, like, plus two adjacency for a commercial hub, I think. Those are nice, but I don't think they're valued as much as the uh, science. I mean, the correct answer is just to put uh, military districts in every city and build units, but... uh, (laughs) I guess you can then make a campus after that because you can't build uh, two military districts. So, like, you can't have two encampments in one city. Well, it is. So you might as well you might as well build something else. Well, Grandmaster Phil, it it is. 
It is a little bit difficult there, Grandmaster Phil, to win the entire game with just warriors and archers, so you're going to need a campus somewhere sooner or later. You'd be surprised how far you can get, actually. I've tried a game or two where I just didn't build any campuses, and you can can still win, uh, because you can really abuse Eurekas, and uh, ultimately you capture them anyway, so... Yeah. Yeah, it's not impossible, but... (laughs) <laughs> you get more than one district slot for a city for a reason, so you can probably work some other things in there. And man, if only I could be a Grandmaster or something at chess, that would be incredible. Yeah. You need to be pretty good for that, though. Casually stomping a friend or two is, is not going to get you there. Yeah. yeah, it is pointed out on this thread that uh, the condition is 15 pop or the plus four science district, and I think a, a lot of people didn't realize that. Uh, and that does make a big difference because, you know, getting one, or especially if they do not stack, uh, so it is just you get one or the other, so there's no reason to get both. Uh, like I said, like, 15 pop is not particularly hard to get to. So you'll still get use out of this policy. Maybe not as much as you used to, but you'll get use. Yeah, it's a bit annoying for happiness and such, but you could make it work. And I would assume that if Firaxis changed it, there must have been somebody somewhere who was complaining that it was too easy to meet the conditions for rationalism. Because uh, the the difference between plus three and plus four uh, in adjacency for any district is actually, like, pretty substantial. Like, plus three districts are, I would say, easy uh, to get with even just a little bit of planning and forethought. You know, plus four is considerably more challenging because it does pretty much require that you have a favorable favorable map for it. Uh, and I think that's a big part of the reason why, uh, you know, there's uh, historic moments for getting districts up to plus four. I don't think there's a historic moment for getting a plus three district. Also, just to confirm that it's not... It, this is counting base adjacency bonus, right? Like, so if you take the double adjacency bonus thing, you're not just going to... <laughs> pop rationalism everywhere i'm assuming yeah someone i think in the the thread confirmed that that is the case okay i figure that would be the case but it's always good to check because sometimes game designers don't necessarily uh implement things as intended or don't think things through and you you could get outcomes where something like that gets implemented where you just run the double adjacency one and get rationalism everywhere Right, yeah. especially yeah, if it's everywhere you can manage a plus two. Especially if the game rounds up. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I'm personally on the fence with this change. Yeah, I don't know that it's necessarily bad. I, I man, science has been so dominant in Civ for so long it, that it's it's tough to find a balancing point for the trade offs. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Right. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> I was gonna say, I kind of feel like they went went first at the balancing rationalism and decided to add the other cards later, you know, because, because science has been so much of a main thing everybody's doing, everybody's overdoing maybe, because we all tend to con- zoom in on, and you know, I mean, you have to still do an economy. We tend to zoom in on the science because that pushes the game through faster. Yeah. And in Civ six defense, I think it's probably the best uh, yeah. at, at providing alternatives. Like you really can just encampment push. And if you have your units trained up well and such, uh, they perform pretty nicely in single player. That's really like you could win with like infantry and artillery in Civ four, just 
slamming numbers at the AI, even on fairly high difficulties, and beat more advanced stuff. But man, it was a grind. You took pretty heavy casualties doing it. Yeah, contrast to that to Civ Six. If you have enough uh, promotions and general bonuses going on military units, you completely dumpster things at tech parity, and you can even still beat units in the next era forward. Yeah, it and doesn't matter. Beat, I mean, your your stats are higher than theirs. Yeah, it doesn't matter how strong the other unit is if you can just focus fire it to death in one turn before it gets a chance to do anything. Well, yeah, but you have to be strong enough to do that. So if, like, once, once we're talking, like, two errors ahead and you've got, like, 60 strength versus 30 strength units, even if you stack all your military modifiers, you're going to be at a disadvantage there. Um, but if it's just one, which is pretty substantial, because uh, it's not that hard to only lag by one tech era, if, even if you're, like, barely trying with science, you, you have to really, like, uh, be face-planting to be doing worse than that. Yeah. Then you you can fight like artillery armies with generals backing them are pretty nasty stuff for the AI to deal with, even if they're using like literal end game units. So they can be like thousands and thousands and thousands of research ahead, and you can still win that way. So yeah, I mean certainly the <laughs> with anybody competent leading the other side, they're going to win, and science is still king. But I I would say definitely less so uh, than any of the previous civs. Which is nice. Uh, I'd say they're getting closer, and it, it's nice to see that they're that they still like you still have incentive to go science, but they're they're trying to make it less obvious. That's good. I wish they took the same stance on offensive versus defensive posturing in wars, but whatever. <laughs> One thing at a time. <laughs> and if this change means that we don't have uh, AI civs in the atomic era in fourteen hundred AD, you know, maybe that's a you know win. I don't think that'll this will make much difference. No, it probably it? won't. I doubt the AI was was hitting adjacency, rationalism, bonuses with much reliability even previously. Although it surprised me. Well, AI cities get pretty big uh, on That's true. the harder difficulties, so they're going to just trip over that fifteen pop condition in a lot of their cities, like without even trying, just because of all their like growth and yield modifiers. But then they were already doing that previously, right? Right. right. So, so the, the nerf, or the yeah, so the nerf wouldn't have mattered in that regard. Yeah, I, I don't expect too much difference from the AI over this. No, neither do I. All right, are we ready for the next topic? I think so. Ooh. Ready, steady. All right, the reloading scale of shame. <laughs> <laughs> what are we even oh, doing? What? Paradox games now? Wait, what? <laughs> No trophies for you, or no achievements for you, unless you play on Iron Man. <laughs> Never mind that that does not stop you safe scumming in the slightest. Not even a little bit. It makes it marginally Oops, less convenient. I, I, I think you have to control delete. I think you have to like end okay. task. You can't just alt F4. But you can even like copy the save. It's such a basic crap. You can copy the save out of the Iron Man folder, like onto your desktop. And then anytime you want to go back, you can just paste that back into the folder overwriting the Iron Man save back to what it was. It's so stupid. It's so meaningless. And yet people have such a hard-on for it. Okay, rant over. Let's look at it in this context. Minow, Minow, Minu has posted a thread listing the seven levels of reloading and the scale of shame associated therewith. Beginning at the low, the low end of the scale, which is the level of shame, 
the correct answer is game crashes. So if the game crashes and you reload and make the same moves, that's not that's the lowest level of scum. I mean, the is, level... is that even like scum? I mean, yeah, the that's... game crash. What are you supposed to do? Just not play it anymore? <laughs> I would, well, it also I has would... to do with repeating what you did exactly and not having realized as a game crash, oh, I should have done X instead of Y in doing that. I don't know. Sometimes I take the game crashing and me having to reload the save as like a hint hint from the game that I was making bad moves and I need to reevaluate them. <laughs> <laughs> game's like, are you sure you want to do that? Let me just crash just to make sure you're sure you want to do that. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Go, continue, Canis. The second level is the misclick where your finger slips or your child decides to move the mouse and move the unit on their own. This is not <laughs> the way that you intended to do it, but or your is, cat or dog steps on your keyboard. Yeah, yeah. Physical physical error as opposed to a mental error, and this is also not considered very scummy by this guy. And number three, make an unintentional move because you did not realize a setting. For example, chopping a forest thinking it will go to City A, where Magnus is rushing pyramids, but the forest was actually assigned to City B. Reload and redirect the chop. This is careless, but you intended to do the right thing, so... Uh, I would actually put this at 2, depending on the context of the game. In other words, the worse the UI, the, the less bad, I would say, this type of reloading is. Well, knowing what tile is being uh, belongs to what city is like as simple as just hovering over the tile. So like, yeah, that's something you can check, and that's yeah. there. It's but not since a high we ball were ball. on the we were on the topic of like paradox games just a moment ago because I brought it up, and this immediately comes to mind because of that for me. There are times in the game where the where like in EU four the game will just straight up lie to you. Like you can mouse over the thing on the interface, and it will tell you one thing, and when you click on it, something else happens different from what it just told you. Uh, to the extent where, like, to, that has to be number two and close to number one for me if it's that bad. But if it's something where it, it was visually obvious and you just didn't notice, or it, it's something you're aware of and you just made a mistake, then I think it's fine here. So it really depends just how bad the, uh, or just how much of this was player error versus developer error. And there is a difference between those two that can be reasonably clearly drawn. Number four, which is halfway through the scale. Accidentally forget to do something like change policies, move a governor, or send a delegation before the end of the turn. I would like to say that I do really wish that there was like a notification in the bottom right next to the end turn button that, you know, policies can be changed and governors can be assigned because like right now the only indication that the game gives that you can do those things is like a tiny little exclamation mark icon on the like policy or governor button and yeah it, it is a really easy thing to like not notice like especially if uh you're coming out of like a particularly long you know turn processing where like a lot of ai moves were happening and you still have all the animations on so it took like two whole minutes to watch what the ai does and then you just forgotten that you were going to change social policies so i would chalk that one a little bit up to ui as well just like uh phil did with the previous one yeah but we're getting closer now to the yeah. actual scumming number five reload because you were moving a settler or a builder on autopath and it ends near a barbarian this is considered a mental lapse 
and uh, get over it, basically. I don't know, man. It, like, yeah. you, you shouldn't it, have it, to move that's... every single unit one tile at a time the whole game. Like that is, I think, asking for way too much micromanagement from the player. And all the game would have to do is interrupt the move if something dangerous is in the fog. You know, either being at war or a hostile unit of any kind. To be fair, though, like assigning a multi-turn move to a unit is risky in Civ Six anyway, because if anything gets in the way of that, like another unit or something somewhere in the fog of war, your unit is prone to just turning around and walking the opposite direction to find it. That's true, and that's also a serious issue with the game. One of my biggest issues with the game is just the the, uh, the hassle of playing it because the UI is bad. It's yeah, so bad it's, since at least. it's one of the things where I'll like just finish with a war or something like that, and instead of being like, yeah, I just won, I'm like, oh god, now I have to move all 15 of my units back to the <laughs> other side of the globe, like one turn at a time, because if I just tell them all to go over there all at once, they're going to split up and go the wrong way, and they all have different move speeds, and oh my gosh, it's just going to be a nightmare. Yeah, it's awful. And I would I would put this higher too, like this, because this is just obnoxious. It is a disrespect to player time, and then to say that the players should be penalized for not painstakingly moving one hex at a time because the developers can't make a UI. I don't know, man. I am not nearly as inclined. No. I would put this higher than the previous one, and maybe even closer to misclick. Now, if you're moving your settlers and builders and civilian units into potentially dangerous territory without an escort, that is 100% on you. Yeah, if you're go if you're blindly moving like onto a, something that burns up all your movement or something, sure. Yeah, I'd agree then that that's that, that that's when this is where it belongs, but not from auto pathing. The fact that auto pathing exists implies that auto pathing should be usable and not a newbie trap. And this is acknowledging that using autopathing is a trap, which I don't agree with. I don't agree with that autopathing should be a trap, so yeah. Number 6A. Reload because you made a military blunder like exposing an archer to get killed by a sword. This is military <laughs> cheating. Now we're into yeah, this is straight scumming at this point, yes. Yes, that, now we are into <laughs> legit cheating. Now, do you make like a special exception for cases where the game UI told you you would win the battle, but then the role actually made you lose the battle, and like that makes all the difference? I, I hmm. It depends on the game. In Civ Six, it should really show you that there's a range of possible outcomes, and yeah. you don't know what those. You don't know which of those range of outcomes will happen. And if that was the information presented, then I would make no exception because yeah. you are taking a risk then. It would and... be nice if they could somehow like show you like a bell curve of like the possible outcomes. Like you are most likely to do 20 hit points in damage, but you know, you are uh, 5% likely to do 25 points of damage and kill the unit, you know? I mean, it's not that hard. Here's the White Magic 3 managed it decades ago. I'm sure they could manage to give you a damage range on your UI bar, just like that did. Yeah, so even this <laughs> one has the little asterisk next to it saying that, you know, UI can screw you over and potentially force this as opposed I, I to just being I still think it's cheating, but it's, it's bad UI. But once you know that this is a possibility, you're kind of lying to yourself then. But yeah, I, I do agree that the, the UI can cause problems here. And they really shouldn't. 
it, it should not be something in the game where how do, how do I put this? If you're if the information what that's already available to you is presented in a more clear fashion, then your decision making would change. That's a bad thing for the game. That's a bad thing in any strategy title. That any time that happens, that's a bad UI choice by the developer. And so, yeah, but the vast majority of times players do this, it tells us straight up scumming. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we all know that there is a die roll associated with making a combat attack in, you know, every civilization game. So, you know, we kind of don't have any excuse in that regard. We know, uh, but, you know, I can definitely see for, like, a less experienced player, uh, yeah, that would be an extenuating circumstance. But oh, the yeah, if it's your first me... time playing, you're just going to straight up screwed because yeah. there's nothing the game does to indicate the range of possibilities when you're just mousing over and right-clicking. But it said like, decisive victory. Why did I lose? Not only does it say <laughs> decisive victory, it flashes a health bar that is empty outright. Like right. It is directly yeah. implying something different from what happens. And it's especially troublesome. The the one place where it does really get me is the situations where, like, both units have, like, critical HP, and I have, like, a little bit more, and I'm like, well, I should be able to kill this last enemy unit and survive, but I'm rolling the dice. Yeah, but that's pertinent information. Like, the game should not represent it as there's no chance that this unit will die, and you will definitely kill the opposing unit, and then not do that. It's just not okay. Yeah, and that is kind of the heavy implication of the UI is, yes, this will be a decisive victory. You know, it doesn't tell you you're going to end with one hit point and there's uh, so, you know, so much percent chance that the other unit will kill you. Yeah. So, yeah, even with this one, I can see some extenuating circumstances. And I haven't seen it recently, but there were times where the game would tell me I was doing a ranged attack, and then I'd right-click, and then my unit would move and not fire. Oh, and, God. like, ah. that's not even that's not even ambiguous. That goes right up to number one, in my opinion. Yeah, I, that's one of the reasons I always use the ranged attack uh, button or keyboard shortcut instead of just, like, doing a move-click, because, yeah, I can't trust the game to do the thing I wanted it to do. Although I have not encountered that um, too recently. Like, it's been a number of years. Maybe I've just been lucky. Maybe, or maybe it was fixed at some point. Well, yeah, yeah. I think that's the more likely. Number six B: Reload until reload when you realize you built something wrong many turns later. Going back, for example, to start a wonder you missed earlier, or change campus you were building to a horseman. Domestic cheating. I was really surprised to not see the specific example of you have one turn left to build a wonder and the CPU built it first as you reload a few <laughs> turns earlier to chop and beat them to it. <laughs> like that would be the that would be the example I would cite in this. That's case. what you get for building wonders and telling me you're building them out loud. Oh wait. <laughs> Well, that although, was a special case. I although, thought I was not directly involved in that, but that was such a funny moment. Although, to, hey, I got um, this is Teen Chapel in X turns. Whip. <laughs> to Civ's credit, though, uh, you can see if the other Civ that's building that wonder is, you know, on the part of the map that you have revealed, even if you don't have visibility, it will show that they are building a wonder, and it will show a pretty granular uh, view of how close they are to building it. 
Uh, I kind of wish that you could just highlight over the tile and it would say like wonder 90% complete or whatever. But, you know, if you look very closely at the model, like you can see if you are further ahead on that wonder than the uh, other uh, sieve. Uh, of course, if they're, you know, off on another continent and you haven't seen them at all yet, then you have no way of knowing. But uh, if you are Plus competing... they could chop it. Yeah, well, that's true. They could chop it too. But uh, the, the game actually does give you the ability to to see, you know, how competitive you are about going for particular wonders against the other sieves that you have uh, met and have visibility to. There too, if that's available to you in the UI... Why make it so cryptic and obnoxious to access the information? Either you should make that information accessible to the player so that they can trivially interact with it, or don't make it accessible to the player at all. Like, pick one. The one other instance where I wish the game would tell you how far along the uh, other Civ is to building something is with city walls. Because you have sometimes those situations where uh, you're yeah. attempting to uh, siege a city and it's not, it doesn't have a wall. And then you suddenly see the half-built wall pop up on that city. And it's like, okay, well, I know they're building the walls, but I don't know how long it's going to take them. It always feels like it comes up almost instantly after you see the first... Yeah, I feel increment. like yeah, it always feels like it's like two or three turns later. And it's like, what the heck? It takes me nine turns to build a wall. Why are they doing it in three? Maybe they're because running they lines. Have bonuses. Well, yeah, that's true. They just bought it, lol. Valletta, here we come. Number seven. Reload and make moves in a different order to change the RNG to affect combat, to get different rewards from a village. Rewriting history until you like it. The filthiest of cheating. <laughs> I mean, we were all expecting this to be here, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, someone in the thread also listed the uh, uh, significant example of an AI surprise declares on you before you were prepared. So you reload like five or ten turns earlier and build an army. Yeah, that would be right there at 6B. It's the same kind of mindset. And now for my final thought. No, I am not Jerry Springer. Um, <laughs> the joke here is that this guy cares about what other people are doing in their single-player games. <laughs> well, there's that, too. Yeah, I, I mentioned that. I, I responded on this, and I'm like, you know, if you're playing a single-player game, uh, it doesn't really matter uh, what you do. You know, play however mm -hmm. you like. And in fact, save scumming is a va very valuable learning tool if you're inexperienced. And in previous episodes of this show, I have said, if you are learning the game, save scum all you want, because it will teach you the game mechanics. Actually, yeah, that's it. Very much frustrates me that it is extremely hard to do that in Dominions, because like you don't want it in real games because it's cheating. But if you just want to have a battle scenario play out over and over again and see the impact of making one decision versus another, and just like test that, like okay, what if I put this unit here? What if I told this unit to do this instead of this? How, how does that impact the battle? How does that affect how many casualties I take? Does it change the outcome of who wins, etc.? There are so many possible iterations, and it's it's not practical to set up that same scenario over and over while just making small iterations. And you could learn a lot from that. And it's the same thing in Civ. If you're if you are reloading to try to learn sequences or make plans or something, I mean, yeah, it kind of quote unquote taints the game in the context of the game you're playing. But if you're doing that with the goal that in future games, you now have the answer to this scenario every time, so you don't need to worry about it anymore, then 
it just saves you time. It's a legit thing as part of the learning experience. Yeah, unfortunately, though, or well, I don't know if it's fortunately or unfortunately, I guess it depends on how you look at it. Civilization and Civilization Six in particular is an exceedingly complicated game. So even we are still learning new things about it. And I still save scum quite a bit, especially in the uh, later uh, eras of the game where I'm just less familiar with the game mechanics and what things do, because, you know, how often do you actually get to the atomic era of a game and, you know, use all the units and build all the buildings and, you know, all that stuff. So I generally don't just because I don't know that I could learn a lot from most of them. Um, well, that and man, playing through returns is <laughs> this yeah. is the last thing I want to do. If yeah. I've spent 20 turns fighting the or 20 minutes fighting the UI is go back and undo all of that. Oh yeah, my gosh. Even you, just one no. turn can be 10, 15, 20 <laughs> minutes of uh, of real time. Well, I'm faster than that, but even so, it's still if you're going if we're talking like five turns or something, oh my gosh. That is like I don't care what kind of benefit I'm getting from that. At that point I'd rather just lose, I think. But yeah, a, a I want to re- rewind the past hour of my life to replay these five turns. Yeah, the heck with that. But, but there's also like if you can just experiment with it and burn turns and be less optimal, but still get to see how that mechanic interacts. Uh, I usually just do it that way. Yeah, because like I'm not in any competitions or anything. So yeah, and I, I always do get particularly annoyed with myself for reloading a late game turn because you know not only does it just take longer, like even I think the load time is longer later in the game, and then yeah, it takes longer sure. to actually file. play the turn, and then it takes longer for the AIs to simulate their turns. But it's also the fact that at that point in the game, the decisions are usually less meaningful. Yeah, in, in terms of the outcome of the game, yeah, for sure. You kind of know how it's going to end by late game in most cases. But I, I do want to make a couple callbacks to previous topics, which is the example of uh, accidentally moving a unit onto a hill because you couldn't tell whether or not it was a hill. <laughs> uh, that probably falls Oops, under like the first, yeah, that falls under like the first two or three. And then uh, someone, um, Mount Suribachi, said, uh, you forgot that you are playing on consoles and can't uh, go more than an hour without crashing, requiring an autosave to be reloaded. You don't reload for anything else on console because it takes several hours to load a save. Uh, oh my. So apparently load times on the consoles are not particularly good. And I posted in, in response to that, like, you know, I played Skyrim and Fallout New Vegas on consoles. <laughs> I remember the pain of spending more time in loading screens than actually playing the game because I had to reload several times uh, an hour to undo Bethesda's bugs and crashes. <laughs> There's just no need for that on modern consoles anymore. What the heck? But then Civic has been pretty badly optimized from the start. Uh, so I guess it doesn't surprise me that it struggles with consoles. Civ 5 was, too, uh, to be fair. Uh, so, yeah, so our next and, I think, uh, last topic uh, for this uh, Saturday is an article on Game Rant, uh, Civilization VI, 10 Map Seeds You Need to Try. And I don't know that we're going to have a whole lot to talk about this uh, other than that this article exists, and they recommend trying out some of these maps. Uh, so, you know, some of our listeners might want to check them out as well. Uh, they they did it as like a top ten, uh, and in fact, I actually am really curious to try the uh, the number ten one because it looks like it actually starts you off on like a one tile wide like bit of land between two bodies of water, 
and uh, that's always kind of like just an interesting strategic or uh, tactical position to start the game in. Just immediately having your capital be on that canal space between uh, uh, multiple bodies of water. Yeah, that's the most interesting part of that one. I think that's what the, the topic even says. There's lots of resources around you, and you're between two oceans. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I was specifically uh, going back to the previous topic of, of uh, save scumming to uh, re-roll different maps. Uh, I had recently been trying to get a similar start for uh, Byzantium, a Byzantium game. Uh, just to play it out. So now at least I have a map seed that I can use to guarantee that I will get a start that gives me that starting condition. The one thing that I dislike about this article um, is that it doesn't say anything about like what the other game settings are for that seed. Because I don't know what size map this is on, or and I don't know if that makes a difference. Like if you if you change the the map size or like the the map type like continents versus archipelago and you put in the same map seed do you get the exact same map uh does changing the side size give you a similar map that's just bigger with more tiles or less tiles like how does anyone know how that works i don't know offhand but i have to imagine that if you picked like archipelago and the seed was for pangea that you'd get different outcomes or does the same map seed just always generate the same map regardless of your settings? I would have to imagine that's not the case because you can set all of those settings independent of the map seed. Like it's not like putting in the uh, custom map seed uh, grays out all the options. And I think even when you're in the game setup, like it shows you what map seed you're going to use and you can still change all those settings. So the fact that this article doesn't specify any of that stuff I'm I'm just going to assume it's all standard game settings, standard game size, continents, uh, etc. But it, it well, doesn't... some of them clearly say Pangea in the article description, though. Maybe. So at least for those, I would say you'd probably want to set Pangea if you want to get the same experience. Yeah. So writers of Game Rant, next time you write an article like this, make sure you include all the other game settings that went into creating that particular map or game condition. Because uh, Also, throw us a bone and give us one or two just absolutely horrendous starts. They're just awful for one reason or another. Yeah, well, you can go to Reddit Because those are always fascinating, too. You can go to Reddit for that. Well, there's one in here that starts you down in the tundra. I mean, you are, in this game, they're Russia, that's why they started down there, but if you wanted to play the tundra start thing... Yeah, there is. It's number four, I think, is the one. Yeah, yeah that, I see about. number four, but number four is too good by the standards I'm describing. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of resources. Like, there's like two or three sources of fish right there. There's a bunch of, I think, that's silver. And you have like a couple good tiles to work immediately. And, that's uh, way too good. And their capital also has like two tiles between them and one of the natural wonders that I think just gives you a extra food on every tile adjacent. So those tons yeah. of tiles are generating like three food each minimum. <laughs> Look at they're, they're, you have a big food icon, a hammer, and two culture on one tile there. Like, yeah, I would not describe that as necessarily a bad start. Yeah, you might be choked off a little bit or in expansion, but I, I think you could play around this without considering this a bad start. Typically, yeah, definitely. This is way too good for what I'm describing. <laughs> yeah, that is a better start than most of my non-tundra starts. Yeah, I like the one where you're surrounded by a crater of mountains. Which uh, which <laughs> number, number is that? Yeah, number eight. I, 
Yeah. Number eight, eight and, number and seven. seven are both very defensible. Number eight. Yeah, number seven is uh, similar in that the capital is literally surrounded by mountains. Like, almost every tile that is two spaces away from the capital is a mountain, and three of them are volcanoes. It'd be extremely hard to attack either of those positions. One yeah. of them is Vesuvius, too. And then some of these pictures just show, like, a zoomed out picture of the mini map, which doesn't really tell us all that much about the starting map conditions because we can't see what resources and stuff are there. So, you know, it's pretty typical for uh, clickbaity sites like Game Rant, but, uh, you know, there's still some interesting stuff in there. Yeah, number five looks like it's interesting for multiplayer because you've got two good sized continents. There's a small island continent thing in between them, but you still need to do uh, cartography to get across. Yeah, there's like one tile of ocean on one side uh, between uh-huh. the continents. I, I do have to say, though, that I tend to dislike those maps that put the continents close enough together where you can actually like meet everybody well before getting cartography. If I'm playing on a continent's map, like that is specifically something that I don't want to happen. Yeah, well, with this map, even if you, got, uh, even if you were on the right-hand side continent and you got somebody to the island to sit out there in the water and hope you saw one of the other... AI's boats or units or something, there would very easily still be people up in the northwest of the other continent you would never meet until cartography anyway. True. I mean, unless they all send a boat down there for some reason, but that's <laughs> yeah. that's not likely, especially once borders uh, expansion yeah, start locking off looks, the water. And it looks like both of them have one has the southern uh, the southern path. One has the southern passage. One has a northern passage against the ice. So it's not like they could go around either, necessarily. Yeah. I would like that map, uh, number five, a lot more if on the left, the western continent, you see like there's like a big like inland bay kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I would like it a lot more if uh, a lot more of that water were traversable earlier in the game so that you could actually have oh, like an inland sea, you know, like Mediterranean kind of uh, uh, naval situation where you can actually sail from one end to the other in a reasonable reasonable amount of time. Yeah, that's actually got quite a bit of ocean, especially like down on one side of it. It's like the way the map normally forms, but you think it would have met made more sea instead of ocean. Yeah. Yeah, there's like the, the tips of those two ends of the uh, bay are like six tiles apart, but there's still two tiles of ocean in between them. So you can't traverse it with the uh with a galley. You gotta go around. And there's also a couple of uh, decent Civ-specific maps here. There's a desert map seed for number two uh, for people who want to play as, uh, like, Molly or Nubia or someone like that. Thanks. I looked at the desert one before, and I was going to say something about that, but then I realized, no, actually, that's a decent desert, because there's oasis, there's a river down in the south. It's like, oh, that's actually all right. And I think they also mentioned that there's, like, two natural wonders uh, within pretty close yeah, range too so i can see the delicate arch down there i'm not sure what the other one is uh it's one of those like nordic names that's super hard to pronounce but oh. i don't think it's in the screenshot okay like yeah i don't know how to pronounce that one maybe canis can try it out for us <laughs> which word is this uh, under map seed 2 the natural wonder name oh ef yokel there you go Oh, okay. It's the Icelandic volcano again. Just in a different place. Canis saves us. I try. I'm not actually that good at it, though. So, yeah, if you're uh, looking for some uh, f- 
interesting Civ Six game experiences to have while uh, we're all waiting for Fraxis to announce whatever the heck the January DLC will be. Uh, give some of these a try. And make sure every opponent is Montezuma or Shaka. Or Alexander. <laughs> oh god, a thousand Montezumas. Ah! Slightly scary. Back in the Civ War days, Mad Scientist, uh, when he was doing his roleplay challenges, one of them was everybody was Montezuma on the map. That was interesting. And wasn't that back when Montezuma was, like, especially aggressive? Um, he had the reputation for it, and he was up there in Civ War AI personalities. He actually wasn't the most, either in units or in aggression, um, but he was one of the ones that could plot it pleased, and uh, he was pretty darn aggressive. Uh, so his reputation was well-earned, but he just wasn't as bad as somebody like Shaka. Uh, he, Shaka built units even more frequently uh, and cared for religion less, so it was even harder to work with Shaka than Montezuma. Montezuma, you could actually get to friendly sometimes because he cared about religion. So if you were in his faith and there was somebody else he hated initially, as long as you avoided trading with that person and you are on good terms with Montezuma, you could almost always get him to friendly before... That thing's at the fan between you. And uh, to be honest, ever since Rise and Fall uh, introduced loyalty to Civ Six, I found Montezuma to be much more of a pushover because uh, he can't get away with forward settling and attacking you anymore because that city is much more likely to flip from loyalty pressure. Yeah, well, in any of the Civ games, he's almost never a threat to land. He's just a threat to attack you early and cause problems. Yeah, my experience is one of two things happens with Montezuma. He either is successful and steamrolls over another Civ and becomes pow- major power for the rest of the game, or he just gets his like butt handed to him right at the beginning of the game and is conquered. Well, even when he wipes someone out, though, it's not like he texts especially well, or uh, like he just makes more units, but by then you can handle that. It, yeah. It's really only on the opening turns where... Yeah, that's really a threat. It just always is scary to, like, discover cartography, sail to the other continent, and find that, like, Montezuma owns all of it. It's not actually as scary as it seems, but it's just always scary to see that. I don't know if scary is the right word. I I feel like when I observe something like that, I I just feel like somebody placed a weight on me (laughs) when it comes to finishing the game. It's like, oh, God, (laughs) slogging through this is going to be awful. Because that's what it would ultimately come down to. Because at that point, you don't even have, in most cases, a safe place to like land your armies and consolidate them before moving them into attack. Like You have to build up a navy that's strong enough to start hammering down coastal cities and get you a beachhead, and then you can move your units in, and you have to be quick about it because of loyalty. And <sighs> Which I believe we talked a lot about in, the, uh, in our last episode before the new year. Yeah, but yeah, but when it's like all the entire continent is one AI like that, like you have to blow away the walls and then I guess not take the city right away and try to run up in there. You can do it. I'm not saying you can't, but yeah, that's just such a chore. It almost makes you wish that there's some other victories in the game besides just conquering them. But maybe you get lucky and there's a coastal capital and you can pull it off anyway. Well, wouldn't you also have to conquer all the other capitals that Montezuma had conquered? Or, Yeah, you would. I just hope they're all coastal, or most of them are, so you can, you can go for an all-in on them rather than trying to worry about loyalty pressure or anything. You just take them all close at the same time and win. 
Too bad there's no other solutions. Just have to take all the cities. But that's a solution for any Civ game. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's the correct way to play. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us on podcast episode 376. I hope we have brought you some joy along with the proper military units we are always bringing along. I'm the Bean Team, and I was joined by Canis Albinus. Someday, I'll be normal. Makalua? Phil doesn't want to play chess with me because I pants it and I don't use strategies. <laughs> and Mega Bears fan. Time to watch the Bears embarrass themselves on national television in the playoffs. Again. They could win. <laughs> Again? Civilization 3, 4, 5, Beyond Earth, and 6, Sound Clips, Copyright Take 2, Interactive. Copyright the Polycast at thepolycast.net. Okay, stream is ended. I'll play you in chess if you want. <laughs> I've got... Uh... I was talking about that because you were talking about, oh yeah, you gotta start with the strategy. He's like, oh dear. I just sit there and go, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I don't have a strategy. Well, the, the, the opening I described as a meme opening, because uh, oh. moving uh, King E2 is like a joke. Uh, one of the grandmasters, Hikaru Nakamura, calls it the bong cloud opener. And um, about a month or two ago, he used it in a professional tournament, because like, he was in a position where win or loss, he couldn't affect his final standing. So he, he just whipped out the bong cloud in a serious match. and. <laughs> Although he was losing for a good chunk of it in terms of computer evaluations, eventually his opponent made a mistake and he won anyway. And there were a lot of people who were pretty salty about that. <laughs> I, I have seen some stuff about Chester before. I can imagine how salty that was. <laughs> and then uh, the best player uh, for, of today, uh, Magnus Carlson, uh, was asked about it. And he like kept a straight face as he gave a serious analysis, quote-unquote. <laughs> about the various uh, types of bond cloud openers, and he's, like, trying to keep a straight face as he's switching his king and queen at the start <laughs> and calling it opening theory and crap. Oh, my. <laughs> I, I like that he that he did that. The world champion <laughs> answered the question that way. And then when they asked him what he would do if uh, Hikaru played it against him, he's like, ah, I just moved my king <laughs> to E7. <laughs> <laughs> great.